This is Delvin to Discourse. I'm Isaac Pickram. I'm Atre Lyon. And I'm Jahari Shelton. This is a new podcast where we will be discussing and evaluating our opinions, sentiment, and analyses on the pressing issues of our world. Today's discourse is on performative activism with the title Lights, Camera, Action. So we're going to jump in today just talking about all of the social media accounts popping up to uplift the experiences of Black students at predominantly white schools across the country in our own uh, home city, so to speak, or home area of Washington, D.C. We have plenty of accounts, even from the school that we all attended together. And recently, the school has recognized the account and seeking to honor the experiences that have been named um, on it, released a statement recently saying that they want to hear more from us, they want to understand, and they want to get folks involved in uh, action at the school in order to create an anti-racist future. Now, Isaac decided that it was BS, (laughs) and so therefore he commented saying, that he does not believe that the school actually wants to um, make any meaningful change and basically gave them his demands for what they should do going forward. Right. And so essentially what I said to the institution is um, they were saying, we want you to share your experiences. We want to hear these things coming out of the account. And so what I said to the institution was, okay, fine. Don't do anything to silence these voices. Don't do anything to shut down the account. Don't do anything to find out who it is if you're true about what you're saying. Um, and the account hasn't posted in a while, which worries me about whether they're being censored or controlled by the institution. Um, and I think that's already a problematic uh, view. And the other thing they said in their post was uh, the, the school was, Well, you can reach out to us. Please reach out to us with these concerns. And it's funny because the whole reason that this account was created and these accounts are created in other places are because the voices are being silenced or because people don't feel comfortable saying what they need to say or um, talking about the experiences they've had in those institutions because of the environment created in those institutions. So I found it a little bit patronizing. Um, and I know a lot of the schools where these pages are coming out, whether it be a university or high school, are sort of releasing the same kind of statements and not acknowledging the role they played in creating these accounts. Right. right. And I also wanted to say, I think ultimately what it is for me is that it just seems out of touch. Like there's so institutions like our shared institution are essentially brands and and what they're kind of hanging on to is this kind of pc like i want to say like 2010 approach where they don't want to like tarnish their their image with these outlandish stories but what they're not recognizing is is that like 2020 i think it's more responsible for a university or an institution a high school to recognize these Um, these stories and take the anti-racist stance um, and not shy away from this and really lean into the discomfort of attacking their their issues whatever they may be than to fall into this come through come to us don't go to the media essentially what they're saying with that one Um, and make it some type of like unified um, wonderful PC front um, and it's just not working. It's tired. It doesn't. It doesn't serve um, students. Ultimately, doesn't serve teachers, as you can see from these accounts. Um, and it's disappointing to see. Right. So I think the main question on the table today, as it relates to this current event, is really around anti-racism. So as you said, right there, brand. Right. Everybody has a brand, whether that be your personal brand, your professional brand, your organizational brand, your corporate brand, whatever. Um, so much so that we actually pay people in careers to build brands and to, um, you know, change the public perception of brands. And so for institutions, uh, predominantly white institutions, and I want to make the distinction that the kind of predominantly white institution we're talking about are elite private schools um, that often are built on uh, segregation and um you know, a lack of black people in the school for and at on, least on the East Coast. On the East Coast, are often physically built with slavery. Right. Well. <laughs> well. Okay. 
see now you distracted me away from my point. You know I'm sorry. my memory is short. Anyway, so <laughs> the the whole we've been talking a lot about anti-racism, right, in our general culture because it is kind of um, uh, what people are running to as a means to uh, get everyone activated in this moment, right? Everybody can be anti-racist, so that is our common thing. However, when we boil it down to simply you have to be against racist policies, practices, behaviors, and analyses, we're left at this reductive reasoning, and which is the whole point of why it's important to preserve ideologies such as this away from the bourgeoisie class who will always co-opt it in, in ways that are trying to silence people who are at the, the quote, radical end of the spectrum. And so I guess the main question on the table, I know I've said this twice now, is, is anti-racism something that you can achieve with a brand, right? Because anti-racism being the anti- that racism is not only a function of our American condition and the corporate condition in the schools that we're talking about is the very foundation of what they're built on, right? And it seeps through every single layer of their design. So so is it that they can still exist and reform as they, you know, tend to lean towards reform and change, you know, stuff as simple as curriculum, you know, easy fixes that they could have done a long time ago but chose not to, or are we missing something, right? Uh, so basically, is anti-racism uh, conducive to brands? Well, you know, I, I have sort of two things to say about. The first, I think, is, I mean, the brand is based off of the inst- the institution. And I think the institution does have that ability to change. And there are institutions which are past the point of reform. Specifically speaking about... Um, universities and educational spaces, I don't necessarily think that reform is um, going to underachieve. I think reform is a good thing. I think because educational spaces are spaces that continually need to serve generations, if that makes sense, you can never just remove educational spaces. To be fair, there are places that are schools and institutions that aren't necessarily educating. Um, But I think in that way, reform is a good thing for educational spaces. Um, The other more difficult part is what is anti-racist. And I think the reason that that is gonna be an important semantics issue and something that I've noticed in being sort of, I don't wanna say the forefront, but in being a very active person in terms of social justice is words are always co-opted. And so you see this with like woke in 2010, it was a very positive thing to be woke, but now woke means that you're sort of just doing this performative activism thing and you don't know what's going on. That's the way people use it. There's a lot of words like that. Um, That's sort of what happened with diversity in the early 2000s. Diversity was like all the rage, like (laughs) we needed diversity, but now it's like, are you doing more than diversity? And so what I see happening and, and this is, huge in the branding part is using the word anti-racist as part of the brand to say, look, we're an anti-racist institution and then not doing anything about it. And I'm most fearful of them co-opting the word decolonize because I love the word decolonize, but if they co-opt that word and say, we're decolonizing our institution and then don't change anything, then we're going to have to remove that what that word means and come up with new words, Um, which (laughs) sounds like a very small thing, but it's actually a very difficult thing because in those transition periods, it's confusing. Do I wanna be woke or not? Do I wanna be anti-racist or not? All of these things. And I think that is sort of the most important part in talking about branding versus uh, anti-racism. Right. And I think also for me, it's always, I always have to raise my eyebrows when I see the institution that, or the establishment that one is trying to kind of change, co-opt words that you're using. Um, Like kind of that doesn't ever seem, the optics of that feels very weird. Um, And it's unfortunate that anti-racism or anti-racist has been kind of co-opted. I wouldn't say it's there yet, but I think it's it's coming close. Um, But as I said in the other, episode the first episode I think it it would be actually to our advantage to 
not take the defensive because by definition, if you're anti-racist, you're kind of falling on a defensive, um, in a defensive position. But if you're pro something, you also have your offensive. I mean, this is not a war, although stay tuned for our American Civil War predictions. Um, but I think that we need to be for something. And, and so in that sense, I would be personally pro-decolonization. I would love to see that. Um, and, and unfortunately, it does look like our institution has, has gotten a hold of that word as well. Mm. Um, but what I did also want to say was um, the, the role of social media in all of this. Because I think what we're really getting into is like optics, as Jahari said, branding as well. Um, and it's becoming such a social media like rave kind of craze of um, of these words that mean a lot. And I think a lot of people are saying them very openly, like they're not saying anything with action backed behind it. They're taking the stance to save their brand, to save themselves. And I think we'll get into that, too. It's not just institutions, because ultimately, I think Gen Z has kind of created this concept of a personal brand. Um and so everyone's kind of throwing around these words um, and backing it with some very um, hypocritical action. Um, I'll get into that later. But Jahari, yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely going to come into our conversation of what does it mean to be a conservative, neoliberalism, and all these other things. Is semantics? People always excuse these things and say, "Well, it's just semantics. It's just technical things." But it's super important to get the words you're using correct and to know what they mean and to have action backed behind them if you're going to use those words. Right. So I raise the question again. Is anti-racism conducive to brands? I just want to hear yes or no. <laughs> it can be. But I think we also have to remind ourselves. I think we get tricked into thinking that these PWIs have taken a, a liberal brand, um, but ultimately they haven't. Like they've taken a very neutral PC brand. And we also have to remember funding comes, is a big player in this and the power structures of our institutions. And ultimately for, we forget about the, the kind of higher uppers who do not <laughs> in any way, shape or form um, carry this anti-racist brand on several levels. Yeah. So no, my, my answer is no. Okay, no, okay, perfect. Isaac? I would say the quick <laughs> answer is no, but as I was trying to explain in my previous answer, I think it's more complicated than just saying no. Um, but I mean, I think that, you know, this personal and institutional branding is something that needs to slow down or stop in some way. I think it's an overall negative, but I don't think it's necessarily something that we can go back upon because it's already so common. Um, so I think that's kind of unfortunate. And now we just think about how it needs to be handled because everybody puts forward their own brand, like Sway said. Right. Okay, so I want to go back quickly because there is a lot of other stuff to talk about. Back to Otway's point that you would like people to not just be defensive and saying anti or against such and such and pro something, right? So is that to say that anti-racism does not have a um, clear end goal or a clear purpose? Exactly. So you do not think that decolonization is a function or a piece of anti-racism? It is, but here, here we go again into the branding, into the optics, and just semantics. I just think that it would be to... Um, the benefit of, of the movement to choose a pro stance than an anti stance. That's interesting because I don't, I don't think I strongly disagree with that, but that, that is an interesting perspective that I didn't necessarily think about. Um, I mean, we talked about last time decolonization is sort of, especially in the Americas is sort of the next step of anti-racist. And I think they do go hand. I mean, you can't be, racist and support decolonization. So there's definitely like a continuum. But I think that in other areas that definitely applies, but anti-racist is still very important. And I don't think you're saying that it's not important, but the, the original reason for 
especially in recent weeks, months, whatever, for this branding of anti-racism is that we had people who were just not racist. And you needed that transition between not racist and anti-racist, being against the racism, not just being indifferent to it. Um, and I think that people need to go past that. Um, but still, I think it's, it's a little bit, I don't necessarily think it's something that's just defensive. Right. So, so that, so that's my, so exactly the point, right? So when she said that, or when you said, Osprey, I forget that <laughs> you're right here. <laughs> um, the, when you say decolonization, that is also an in-between space, True. right? Because effectively, we're not asking anyone to stand against um, imperialism. We're asking, when we ask people to be anti-something, that means that they have to take an active stance, right? When we talk about decolonization or we talk about, um, you know, post-colonialism, right? That doesn't do anything necessarily to shift towards the passive uh, reformist space into the active transform transformative space, right? And that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, we have diluted anti-racism, but the core of anti-racist um, theory has never been one um, that is not pro anything. It's actually it's actually asking more of you um, than the not racist space. The same way that an anti-colonial um, project or an anti-colonial theory would be asking you to step past decolonization. Fair. Okay, so I've made my point. Next, <laughs> <laughs> I've made my point. Yeah. I. Let me just say, can I just go back to what I said? Go ahead. Um, and I think it goes into kind of something else I wanted to talk about. Um, so I was driving through um, Northwest. I don't know, people, if you guys are from D.C., I was driving through this area of Northwest D.C. Um, that seemed to have been rather recently gentrified. And I was almost bombarded with... Um, Black Lives Matter signs, along with other signs. Um, I saw some pride signs. I saw some like love thy neighbor signs. Um, and it, it just struck me how, um, again, going back to branding, it just felt very um, unnerving to see because there you have the kind of space of like cognitive dissonance or just at this point, I dare say it, ignorance. I hate that word. You guys will figure that out. Um, it's a co-opted word. It is. It is because some people just know. Um, but this this whole optics of seeing these really newly gentrified areas with these BLM signs plastered on their window um, kind of saddened me to see because then you have this area where um, they're not realizing the violence that they're committing on communities when they go in and gentrify neighborhoods. And I think that's why I rather the term pro-decolonization, and then we can move into the space of thinking of gentrification as another form of colonization. But are we not already there? We're not. I don't, I don't think a lot of people are there. I think people are really comfortable driving down um, streets of Northwest, Northeast, Southeast, Southwest, whatever quadrant, and seeing signs of BLM signs and loving that and smiling and seeing oh they're all we're all on the same page but not understanding the hypocrisy in that statement so I, mean, I, I guess have, I have nothing ahead, to add to that I completely agree like it's just DC has such a problem with gentrification we all know this um and it, I mean even me being down in protest and just having the like white gentrifiers watch from the balconies of their homes right. so unnerving and just odd and sometimes they even chant along and it's just a <laughs> little bit um yeah it's a weird vibe so so i guess my next question is do we only value established theories established work when it comes into the public conscious so there are already people who for years have been talking about gentrification as a form of settler colonialism, as a byproduct of, you know, um, the American colonial system um, and how we incentivize specifically uh, land owning white people 
into gaining more land that that does not belong to them and pushing other people out, right? Gentrification would be an extension of uh, white people, you know, pushing, um, you know, native people onto reservations and onto ceded land towards invisibility so that they can acquire more space, like a space race, right? Like we don't, we're not without precedent on that. So is that only valuable when it comes into the public consciousness? Because if everything is going to be diluted or co-opted, once it reaches mainstream discourse, then where are we drawing the line between there can be people who just aren't there yet and we can't wait for them versus let's bring it in. No, let's, let's keep pushing, knowing that if it hits the mainstream, what the uh, negative effects will be. That, that is a really good question. And I, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. I think, and, and the original question is, should it only be valued once it comes to the mainstream? Um, and I think the short answer is yes, but not for the reason that I think it should be, just for the reason that that's how things function. Because when it's in the mainstream, more people know about it. And therefore, it's valued higher with more people, especially in a quote-unquote democracy, whatever you want to call it, it's not. Um, but, I mean, however many people know about it have more sway. And I was thinking about that the other day because I just found out about a new issue that I've never heard of before, which was um, Papua New Guinea and their or West Guinea and their sort of battles with Indonesia and how the Indonesians who are of lighter skin are pressing darker I guess, Aboriginal people from the islands. And I've never heard about it before. And I was sort of questioning is like, how valuable is this? Because there's so much going on in the world. There's so much we want to fight for. I mean, we saw people change their profile pictures to, and this is going to the social media thing, people change their profile pictures to blue for the Uyghur Muslims in uh, China. And then some people added red for, I forget where it was. And then some people added yellow for Yemen. And then some people added all these different colors. The same thing happens on TikTok with this black fist thing. So people post the black fist and then some people added the pride flag. Some people made the fist like all the different races. Some people added like a Christian cross. And the, there's all of these changes happening because there's so many issues um, you have to deal with. And I'm not saying adding any of those things is necessarily a bad thing. It's people's own way of expressing like which issues they care about. And I think that there are pros and cons to that. The pros are that people should care, especially in social justice, people should care about the issues that are closest to them. And that might mean a lot for a black person versus a Native American person. But what does that mean for white people who the problems don't necessarily affect them? Like, how do they choose those things? And I think the mainstream is one of the ways that white especially young adults like our age sort of choose which problems that they're going to stand behind. And I honestly don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because my question would be, how would they know about these things if it weren't in the mainstream? I think there are a lot of negatives. People start to corporations, people start to use these things again with brands. Like if you think about pride month, how brands just sort of change their, all of their stuff to like the pride colors and still support very like homophobic, charities or whatever it may be. Um, but I do think in some way, mainstream action is to the benefit of certain movements. The problem is that sometimes it can suppress either the real purpose of that specific movement, or it can suppress other movements. And I think the only way around that is to have people active in the main mainstream, educating people and trying to control that and trying to guide it. True. I mean, I agree. Um, do I think it, so I think there is no kind of added or subtraction of value when it comes to pushing stuff into the mainstream. It still, it still matters, but I, I agree with Isaac, like on a very technical and real level, I mean, I don't think people care if it's not in your face on your Instagram, you know, page. Um, I think that can get obviously dangerous. But I like what you said about people only caring about stuff that's closest to them. And I think that's actually a way around it, is that I think if more people tuned into the things locally, 
um, like it, maybe not stuff that affects you, but the things that are affecting your community, that's a better way of approaching this. Like, I understand that we are in this wave of consciousness, a global wave of consciousness, um, kind of like more people realizing. Um, <laughs> shout out to the Kylie Jenner meme. Like, I think people are just realizing things now, but I don't think people are fully comprehending things now. So like, I think a better way to approach this is if we really leaned into the community aspect and saying, we live in DC, what's happening in DC? We live in New York, what's happening in New York? Hmm. Um, I think that that'd be a better way to approach this. And I know that people are preaching that, like I, this is not some revolutionary concept, um, but yeah. Okay, well, we're gonna <laughs> move on. <laughs> We're going to move on to the, to the you know, main topic of the show, which was performative activism. I mean, we're kind of there already. Um, but I know that, Atwa, you wanted to talk about uh, performative activism in terms of neoliberalism. Right. So, I mean, you can go ahead. I mean, that's your segment. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this is a topic that I'm just kind of exploring. Um like, honestly, I've been exploring this topic for the past, like, week. It's fascinating to me because I've never really identified with the liberal space, not to say that I'm a conservative. <laughs> um, and I never really could place my finger on it. But I think with, with the current kind of climate, I'm now realizing a lot of issues that I have with this neoliberal space. Um, the first one being, as I mentioned, this kind of in-your-face cognitive dissonance, like white gentrifiers putting BLM signs. That seems very um, evident, but but I guess to a lot of people, it isn't. Um, the second one being, and I think Angela Davis raises this point as well, being this overemphasis on individualism, which I think is a very um, American concept, but I think that the average neoliberal has also internalized individualism. And therefore we have this massive loss on the collective, like this concept that I, I, it's only me, like I'm in this, is also very capitalist kind of um, way of thinking. So I think that if we lean back into the collective and we understand that, um, we take ourselves out and put us all in, um, we can we can find better ways of solving issues. I know that's a very vague kind of statement, but I think that's my that my my qualms with kind of the neoliberal space are quite vague and quite general. Um, but yeah, Isaac, I saw you nodding. Yeah, actually, the last thing you said is interesting about the vague thing. There's there's something that I just found out today or the name of called the continuum fallacy. And it's when people doubt what you say just because it's vague. And the sort of thing behind it is just because something is vague does not mean it's not reputable or does not mean it's not true. Um, So I think that's a really interesting. I listen, I absolutely agree. I think neoliberalism, neoconservatism, um, classical liberalism, all of these terms that are thrown around are really, it just needs to stop. Because one, a lot of these people who label themselves in that way think the same way. Um, and two, I feel that a lot of the time people have no idea what these terms mean. Um, so neoliberalism, um, one, was started as a term to sort of talk about economic liberalism. And I mean, I, I'm almost hating the word co-opted now because I've said it so many times, but <laughs> it was sort of switched, especially in the in the United States to more of a social realm because so much of the problems in the United States, so much of the politics are centered around social issues rather than econo- economic issues. And by no means mm. do I want to separate those two things because they're definitely integrated. But I just think that in terms of like legislation and just the way things are worded, anyways, so um, I did a little bit research, a little bit of research beforehand. So what does neoliberalism mean outside of context of sort of social policy? So in, de- in a developmental model, it's the structuralist economics. As an ideology, it's a minimal, it talks about a minimal state 
and individual freedom. And as public policy, it talks about privatization of industry and deregulation of corporations. And that all sounds really boring. And it is. The reason that interests me is because that is all about economics. That is all about sort of liberal versus conservative in the fiscal realm. And yet still the term neoliberal, liberal, all of these things are used to talk about social values. Um, and we use them to describe people's social values because that's how what they've been turned into. Um, but I find that a little odd because I think, um, and I think you said this earlier, I don't remember if it's when we were actually filming, but some of these issues to me are very black and white, no pun intended, like racism. There's no like neoliberal view on race, like it's <laughs> wrong or right. And it's frustrating yeah. that there's so many semantics issues, so many different terms, the way people think about this, not that people should all think the same way, but it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with. Um, but again, I would say this individualism and pure utilitarianism are a huge danger to American society. And I don't really care because I'm fine with American society crumbling, but I absolutely <laughs> agree about turning back to the collective. This is how every society has functioned, whether you think they're good or bad across the old world, across everywhere for centuries, because there is more benefit in working together as a community. And this this idea of American freedoms, American liberties, individualism, individualism is so dangerous to the collective. It's very dangerous. This is sort of the backing for the Second Amendment and how it's used today, all of these different things. And I think that it is a huge danger to activism because if you look at slavery, if you look at racism from a utilitarianism perspective, so utilitarianism is sort of this idea that one should make sacrifices for the collective and it can be applied in many different ways but i would argue that it's a utilitarian view to enslave 13 percent of the population because the other population would benefit immensely from free exactly and that is a huge problem because it lacks morals it lacks fortitude and again individualism individualism you're not caring about your fellow individual um and so I think those views are dangerous. And I think that is sort of what's almost stopping the progress of activism and making activism performative. Because if you're a utilitarian, utilitarian and if you're very individualistic, your activism doesn't extend beyond making yourself look like a good person. It just right. doesn't. And so everything you do is sort of, again, as we've said, for the brand to save face everything you do, even in terms, even if it's something that's very moral, um, is just for your persona and your brand. And I think that's really dangerous. I think people should want to participate in activism and be active because they feel it's morally correct, because they feel bad or they feel sympathy for other human beings, not because it's to benefit them or to benefit their image, which is the whole basis behind like, corporate activism and things like that right and I also wanted to say two things so I think you really touched on like this whole concept of virtue signaling which is just the most obnoxious kind of um 2020 concept ever um but I wanted to outline something that Angela Davis said in a democracy now interview she says I'm gonna start okay she says well Neoliberal logic assumes that the fundamental unit of society is the individual, and I would say the abstract individual. According to that logic, Black people can combat racism by pulling themselves up by their own individual bootstraps. And I think that's so, that's a testament to like, honestly, everything that I'm seeing these days. And further, I was just reading this article about these two Nigerian um, kind of rappers and DJs um, who were born out of these t other two big um, Nigerian billionaires um, who have kind of co-opted this um, space of neoliberalism in Nigeria through this image of rap and like, I did this on my own. Um, and we're getting into this weird space where it's very... Um, negligent of reality like it's very um again going back to the bootstrap theory where you're kind of in this um 
self-recognition stage, but getting into the absurdity stage of, of just not understanding how the collective works. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's dangerous in my opinion. Um, and I don't think it's the way out, the way out of capitalism. I don't think it's the way out of, um, and I think that also touches on black capitalism as well. Um, I don't think it's the way out of, of racism. It's not the way out of the patriarchy. It's just, um, it's dangerous in my opinion. But go ahead, Jahari. Um, I don't even know what I want to ask you next. Like, okay, so let's talk about black capitalism for a second. Back right. to the performative activism. When people invest in capital and capitalist inclusion as black people, is that activism still correct, sound, uh, grounded? You know, like for instance, when people um, advocate for, you know, some means of, of of like process as a way to lift up the cause, right? So, okay, let me back up. If I want to sell you a t-shirt that's going to, you know, help my black business buy black, then is my act, if I'm still saying that, if I'm saying black capitalism on one hand and then I'm on the other hand saying black lives matter, are those two things antithetical to each other? Hmm. Okay, well, okay. So I think there's two things you need to do or two, two categories you need to separate into, which is black people participating in a capitalist system and therefore having black capitalists. But then there are black capitalists. That sounds right. so stupid because you can't see my hand motions. But what I'm essentially saying is, and, and the way that capitalist was used in its first years, the capitalists were the people, the business owners, the employers, the, the um, tycoons, the- Is that changed? Well, n- no, but what I mean is, so an American farmer from Indiana would say, yeah, I'm a capitalist. I participate in a capitalist system. And I would agree with him, but there are a specific group of people who are like the capitalists, the people who own the capital. And so when I criticize black capitalism, that is what I'm criticizing, not participation of black people in a capitalist system, because I don't think there's a very good way around that. I think, I mean, if you're talking about early black capitalism right after reconstruction, like they weren't just not going to participate in the economy. It was a capitalist economy. Um, but there are specific individuals who are are in the, in the same way as other capitalists are profiting off of suffering, are profiting profiting off of um, the poor and impoverished in a way that makes them black capitalists. And I think that contributes to individualism, utilitarianism. And I think that that is a dangerous thing. Um, I'll and, put, hold on, let me stop you right quick. Yeah. Define utilitarianism. Whatever you just said, the word you just said, utilitarianism. Yes. Define it. <laughs> oh, define it. Okay. So, well, for me too. Utilitarianism, like saying um, capitalism or liberalism or conservatism, means a whole lot of different things because it's been expanded upon. But essentially, it means that the you should make sacrifices for the collective, and that if some group of people is put to the side for the benefit of the majority, then overall, it's a good thing. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of interpreting that. I don't want to, to people who know a lot about this, I don't want it to seem like I'm just oversimplifying, although I kind of am. Um, but I, th- I think utilitarianism is dangerous is because it's, it's almost like when utilitarianism mixes with individualism, people feel that it's okay to profit off of others suffering and then to justify it with a quote unquote benefit for the society. Um, And that's sort of what I'm touching on when I use the word in utilitarianism. Hmm. But to answer your question, Jahari, I think that black people kind of using capitalism to gain capital and to kind of put wealth into the black community potentially could be a short-term solution, but I don't think it's sustainable. 
And I don't think it will lead to any degree of freedom or liberation. Um, I always love this quote, like, choose freedom over privilege. Um, and I think that's essentially what it's saying is let's just get a lot of money. And if you know anything about kind of the American white supremacist capitalist system, that also means being rather adjacent to the quote unquote, the oppressor. So I don't think that I don't think that it's a sustainable practice. I understand it. I actively try to buy black and avoid large corporations like Amazon. Um, but I don't know if that's the way out. Um, I, I don't think that's sustainable. It's not the way out. I'm just going to stand <laughs> 10 toes down on that. It's not the way out. Um, so well, I, I have a question, Jahari. Go ahead. Can we talk about cancel culture? Because I have interest. <laughs> I think it plays into performative action in some way. Activism. Activism. Would you say? You didn't know we had to take the we had to retake the intro at least five times because I kept saying performative action instead of <laughs> performative activism. It's performative <laughs> activism that we're talking about. Did I say action? Yes, you did. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, listen. I just want to know your opinions on cancel culture and performative activism and if they play into each other and whether or not it's a good or bad thing because I have very conflicting opinions on it. This is a great uh, segue into something I've always wanted to talk about publicly. So right now we have a lot of people who are, you know, on the road to baby um, abolitionists, you know, so, so many people that are new to the kind of abolitionist space or to the space of they want to tear down prison, the prison industrial complex or the policing um, system. And I think that, hold on, stay with me and I'm going to connect it. So the, the practice of abolition is that itself, a practice. So meaning that it is not just, let's tear down all these prisons and let's tear down all of these police departments. Um, it, is, it is to be an abolitionist is to simultaneously um, believe that there is no legitimacy to those systems while also taking on um, the personal transformations that have to happen. So if I am a prison abolitionist, then I cannot um, believe in carcer you know, carceral states meaning that people who are locked away, um, deemed unworthy, deemed uh, inhumane or, un or not human um, because we are going to deny them so many things. When you go to prison, we have denied you all types of humanity on several levels, right? We've denied you um, essentially your right to agency. We've denied you um, fair, you know, access to recreation or equal access to recreation, appropriate access to recreation. Um, we, we have decided that your family can only see you during these hours on these days. Um, and if there's a lockdown, if there's some type of um, mishap in the prison itself, then we've cut off all your communication with the outside world in addition to keeping you separate from everybody. So what that means, uh, back to your cancel culture point, right? that there is, there has to be, um, if you're going to call your, specifically for the people who are gonna call themselves baby abolitionists, abolitionists, whatever, um, also have to be willing to get that carceral system out of their mind. You cannot cancel people to the rendering of invisibility, but that is also different from taking people out of your space. I did not, um, put R. Kelly in prison. I'm not advocating for R. Kelly to go to prison. What I'm advocating for is that you divest from, from him as a um, celebrity, as a musician, um, and as somebody who is making capital off of music that they then use to abuse. Right. And so that's that's the connection I want to make. I hope the viewers really understand. If not, they ask me it, again, uh, and then I'll make- Listen, try it to took a couple more. minutes. But that actually made a lot of sense. <laughs> that actually made a lot of sense. Sway, what do you think? 
I mean, yeah, I like I I've been tuning into to some degree Twitter these days and I'm seeing a lot of different YouTubers, which is a whole other thing of celebrities and whatnot. But I'm seeing this one YouTuber has essentially like canceled herself um, <laughs> and has deplatformed herself and has really t- gone the extra mile um, to show some type of apologetic behavior um, for her previous actions. And I mean, I, I can appreciate that. I never really was in her space anyways. Um, but I do think, yeah, I agree with you. There is a, a high degree of hypocrisy if you're demanding that George Floyd's mor- murderers go to jail um, when you're an abolitionist. Um, that's just hypocritical by definition. But I do think that what's happening is, is that we are getting this over-criticization, just might have made up a word there, um, of cancel culture by people who just are scared of accountability and furthermore are sca- scared of their favorite celebrity um, getting canceled. So like I saw in on Twitter the other day, there was this whole conversation between No Name and J. Cole and all the J. Cole stands started coming out the woodwork saying, y'all about to cancel J. Cole. And no one said the word cancel, but there is this fear. And I think that might actually, that a connection might be made um, also. To, we had this fear of R. Kelly being officially put in jail. I kind of felt that. Like, I think a lot of people really enjoyed it being this debate, but some type of ultimate decision, like, scared them. Um, but I think, like, yeah, so we do have to take, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, choose your side on this. I'm not saying that you're allowed to, you're not allowed to um, kind of debate and have conversation, but I do think to call yourself an abolitionist is a big statement, especially these days, and I think more people should stick by it. With cancel culture, though, I think that's getting into the realm of celebrity, and that just invites a lot other concepts that maybe need to be discussed further but yeah i mean ultimately i agree with both of you right and so well i'm sorry go ahead isaac sorry <laughs> i was i'm quick to say something our so i brain turned on. our collective sorry. brain turned on and we wanted to speak at the same time oh yeah <laughs> very often okay so what Johari was saying about canceling somebody and taking somebody out of your space are two different things. And I agree. And if people collectively say, I don't want this person in my space, fine. Like, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> especially if they're like an entertainer and people are like, no, I don't want you in my face, in my space. Fine. And then they're like, I cancel. I lost all my followers. Yeah, because you said the N-word. Like, it's not surprising. Right. The other thing I would say, what Sway said specifically with the YouTubers, which I find funny. So Shane Dawson, right? He had this thing about, I, I guess it was about blackface. And then he also sang this like Chinese song and it was incredibly racist. But like, y'all were watching that. Y'all right. were subscribing when you saw that. Y'all were liking that video. And right. I, I mean, I wasn't. And there are people who wasn't. I'm sure you guys weren't. But there are people who supported him then and now are the same people who are going out and attacking him. How could <laughs> this and it was them who when they were 10 years old were watching those videos and i think that's interesting because especially with internet entertainment it'll be videos that had 13 million views that are now being canceled i mean somebody watched them 13 million people watch them so somebody's responsible and it's not just the creator um i think that's important to recognize in cancel culture but what i will say about cancel culture as it relates to incidents of of um, race and especially sexual assault is that where I see the benefit of cancel culture is that for so many years, because the patriarchy and the racist structure was so strong, there was no outlet for people to even accuse their abusers to do anything about it for them to have any accountability. And that is where I see the benefit of cancel culture. it's it's for the people who see the the exposed video or whatever to decide what they want to do with that information and that is what makes somewhere like the internet a true democracy and i think canceling can be very traumatic for many people i mean if you're talking about a youtuber you might be taking away their whole 
revenue stream, but at the same time, they're accountable for their actions. Um, but yeah, I think the sort of the thing that just sticks with me is that cancel culture, however much of a cancellation it is, because people don't really get canceled. They just take a break for a couple months and come back and start making right. um, <laughs> The whole PR thing. A few people. Anyways, I think the benefit is that there was no way for people in previous decades, previous generations to really accuse their abuser. And I see that as a possible or potential benefit of cancel culture. It just needs to be something that's very clearly um, thought out and well investigated. Right. So I think, uh, way you touched on the point of celebrity. Mm. And I think that this has also happened recently with Angela Davis, as I've seen some people have tried to ask and critique, criticize, I guess, um, you know, inquire about Angela Davis. But because she has been lionized into queen mother of abolition, that she has become above reproach. And I think the same thing happened um, with happens a lot with Beyonce, right? And I don't want the beehive to come after this podcast or personally. <laughs> but um, I'm just trying to give you the facts. <laughs> I'm not trying to state my opinion. I'm just giving you the facts. Bell Hooks um, made a critique or an analysis of Beyonce's body um, as being a purveyor in the belt of capitalism. Um, and you would have to read the piece. We'll post the piece. We're going to start doing like a reading list so that all the things we talk about, will you'll be able to easily catch up on um, in retrospect. But, um, you know, in that, Bell Hooks was basically canceled. People were flooding <laughs> any and everything that referred to her post, any and all of her posts, um, because she dared to criticize or raise questions or inquire about someone um, that 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 has become lionized in our culture, not for bad reason, for actual talent, <laughs> but nonetheless in a system of capitalism, right? In a system that is built on the exploitation of Black women's bodies. And so then I have to ask the question of when is the separation? When will we allow valid um, critiques or even invalid critiques, right? Like everybody is bound to make mistakes. So in my, I'm going to check you when you make that invalid critique. If you're absolutely wrong, then you would deserve to be checked. But what is the, what is the line that we can't cross? Hmm. I think that actually might be along with individualism where Gen Z might not be the savior because I think what we've done and I posted this recently on one of my Instagram accounts like which do you think um, our generation values the most um, money or clout and I'm under the impression that we value clout a lot more than money I think that we by definition are seeming like an anti-capitalist or an anti-capitalism generation or to some to some extent um, but we're still hanging on to this concept of clout and like this concept of all publicity is good publicity. And as you were saying, Jahari, the way that these Twitter accounts are just blowing up of, of anti-capitalist, like um, an anti, well, I'm seeing some communism towards Twitter, but whatever. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people just kind of leaning into the, to the concept of being Twitter famous but and we're still latching on to that. Like we're still latching on to kind of mob, um, stan culture, um, and all that. And I don't know if that's again a sustainable practice. Because Angela Davis is not necessarily I don't think she's supposed to be Beyoncefied. And I don't think she's Beyoncefying herself either. But I do think that could get very dangerous. Right. But Beyonce didn't Beyoncefy herself. I think Beyonce let let herself be Beyonce fied. But, but I also think- So you're saying that she had agency in the system to be propped up on her own wishes. So I don't think she's doing what Kim Kardashian is doing, but I, I like she's not, she no longer takes interviews. She no longer really shows herself. She's not filming her life. 
But I do think to a certain degree, she has leaned into the concept of the beehive and the concept of her being this kind of lion, lioness. That's my person. And I'm speaking from someone who's like maybe objectively part of the beehive. <laughs> just maybe, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Just maybe part of the beehive. Like I have been on Twitter standing. Be- like I'm, I'm, you're talking to her. You're part of the beehive. I'm part of the beehive. <laughs> just got to own it. I mean, Beyonce man. just sounds too good. Like think about it. But yeah, go ahead, Isaac. <laughs> no, that's funny. I was just, yeah, I mean, we're getting to the real questions now. Anyways, that's I think that's interesting. That is an interesting take on it. I I think this actually connects back to the conversation about black capitalism as a short-term solution. Mm. Have we reached the end of the short term? Was the short term already over? I mean, because I also want to uplift Sway's point when she talks about is this generation for money or for clout? And the things are very intertwined. Like, I know that I said I made the joke about clout chasing Gen Z in your cop, you know, when I swiped up on the story. <laughs> but if we think about it, the we've always been a clout-based society. That's actually the function of capitalism. By you being a capitalist and owner of the means of production, um, you know, a, a um, perpetrator of weaponizing private property to, you know, get social status, the whole reason we have these wealthy legacy families is based off of clout, right? That people with clout want to come with each other. People with money develop the clout-based system, what you get clout based off of, that based, whether that means how many places you colonize, how many countries speak your language, so on and so forth. The empires were all <laughs> in clashes, right? The Spanish empire is in clash with the British and with the French because they're all scrambling for the same resources to build their wealth and their clout off of um, a subjugated people. And so this is not without precedent. I don't know if I want to directly call Gen Z or millennials um, imperial powers, (laughs) but um, that this system of money for clout and that transaction um, is replicated in Black capitalism. We have a Black um, elite class, a Black bourgeoisie class. They may not be the ruling class, but they're a bourgeoisie class that exists above, you know, just regular day folk. Um, folks, that is absolutely true. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> if you don't know, I just myself. We're on video. My perspective, too. speaking from my perspective, which for the sake I will not mention, and you can infer, there is a group of wealthy black people who in some ways, I don't want to say forget where they came from, but who in some ways neglect um, their communities. And I, I, I touched on this last time. There are black people who have succeeded in the system and think that because they have succeeded, the system is okay. And that right. doesn't mean anything. Um, and these are, this is a black ruling class does, that does not live in black communities. Uh, this is a black ruling class that profits off of impoverished black communities and impoverished communities elsewhere in the world through capitalism. So it's, I definitely think talking about when that solution, that temporary solution ends is a conversation that needs to be quickly wrapped up in the coming years. (laughs) So let's take it back to the 2016 slash 2020 election. Um, In 2016, Bernie Sanders, well, pre-2016, Bernie Sanders was seen as a revolutionary, (laughs) as a radical, (laughs) um, as being um, too too far away from the mainstream to be elected. And then we talk about this electoralism aspect, right? Electoral politics as a means of savior. Um, And why I don't think that by any means we should be lifting up Bernie Sanders as some celebrity or in the, you know, um, idolatry in the way that he has been, particularly by his white supporters. Um, But Bernie Sanders, to me, is just a transitional candidate, right? When we would have elected Hillary Clinton, yes, so many things that are so basic about our society would not have been 
um, up for grabs as they are right now, but we would not have been going anywhere, right? We would have been continuing for 12 years of the same um, policy platform, right? From 2008 to 2020, 21, or 2009 to 2021. Um, and I forgot what you just said that made me think about that. <laughs> I, what were we just talking about? Black capitalism as a short-term solution, right. I hope the viewers understand that my train of thought does not always run like a quick steam train, okay? It is not linear. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so black capitalism as a short-term solution, the, the middle solution, the place that takes us to communism or whatever anti-capitalist end that we decide is socialism, is democratic socialism as Bernie Sanders, AOC, all of them, um, you know, imply as their belief system. But Rose Twitter thinks that they're the end all be all, but I rest my case. Um, so then I so then I want to ask you the question again. Where when has the rubber meet, met the road for black capitalism to no longer be our short term solution? When does it now become a movement demand? Hmm. Because reparations is not a check it, or it can't be just a check divesting and um, defunding police, policing, ICE, <laughs> all of that can cannot happen without um, the end of capitalism. Because the whole reason that we don't let people into this country, why open borders scares us, is because America as a colonial experiment is cherished white property. And so anybody who is infringing on that is infringing on the capitalist order. Hmm. So once again, so I'm going to ask you, when is the rubber meeting the road? What is our next move? Wow. I mean, I also wanted to, let me just backtrack and then answer your question. I do think that the Black capitalism kind of narrative is coupled with a narrative that I hear you speaking out against a lot, which is Black excellence. And I see that narrative being pushed in the neo neoliberal space. Like we're really obsessed with like black excellence, kind of tokenizing people, exceptionalism, um, and thinking that that's kind of like somehow pushing some type of narrative that is, that is going to be the way out. I don't think that's sustainable, again, as stated. What do I think is the next move? So, I mean, ultimately I stand by the belief that I think that Africa is the future. Now, you guys, uh, you guys should probably know when I see you guys, listeners, um, I'm half Nigerian, half Ghanaian. So I know I'm extremely as biased as you can get. Um, but I think that this pan-African movement could be something. Now, it's being co-opted, has been co-opted by several different things and has been tried um, and has been really just insane has failed um and it's going to fail again i believe with this kind of new wave i'm seeing beyonce's new movie that's irritating me but um so so i'm a beehive stan i'm, a, I'm in the beehive but i i'm a critical beehive stan surrounding you to hold you accountable for what you just said <laughs> <laughs> i do think that um, some type of unification of, of Black people globally um, could be a way, not out, but like a way into something. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my intuitive um, belief. I don't, I don't think I know enough to really give you a, a, a point, a, a plan, but I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that Pan-African movement needs to be pushed by the wayside either yeah i think i mean i'll try and make this quick and finish up because we're a couple of minutes over an hour um <laughs> but i would say one i think the the pan-african thing is really interesting because some of the things i've heard very common from young people are like why do we have nations what's the point of nationalism and borders and the best place to approach that is africa because the borders are pointless and we're drawn by yeah, your they're pointless here too anything. they're pointless here too 
Oh, I agree, but I'm just <laughs> saying societies for all. There's not a basis for them, true basis for them um, on the African continent. And the one thing we have to be dangerous in doing this is just the fact that people already call Africa like it's a country. (laughs) And that makes me upset because I know it almost sounds like I'm saying that right now in this Pan-Africanism. But that being said, I agree with Atsuai. I don't think I could put down a specific year but I think that's sort of what I was trying to say before is it sort of seems as though we are coming to that, uh, that place now. Um, and that's something really important that people should question about all parts of their politics is there's this idea of the Overton window, which is sort of the part of the spectrum of where, which politics are acceptable. And you have the two extremes on either side, even though it's less of a linear thing and more of whatever but you have the the overton window is sort of the place where politics are acceptable or certain ideas are acceptable in a certain time frame and i think that's important because um there are tons of benefits to black capitalism if you're looking at it from the perspective of emancipation into reconstruction into jim crow there were tons of benefits to autonomous capitalists uh, black communities across the country, not to, I mean, they burned them down. I don't know what to tell you, but, uh, I think which, if you look at it from the perspective of a shifting overt window shifting on where politics are acceptable, I think we are approaching that area of, um, black capitalism is no longer needed. Capitalism is no longer needed. We just need to figure out sort of the last step in that transition. Hmm. Okay, so I think it's time for final thoughts. That's where you go first. Sure, okay. Yeah, so to culminate, I will say, first thing, let's try to shy away from individualism that I think pop culture really promotes. Secondly, let's maybe look into some (laughs) Pan-Africanism. And that's your favorite West African Washingtonian speaking. There we go. Um, I think... (laughs) I mine will just be short. I think it, going back to our original thing, performative activism, just stop, <laughs> stop doing it. Do have some, do something with your life. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, that's all I would say. Um, stop treating Africa like it's one country, but still consider Pan-Africanism. There's so many different places to live and it's amazing. And I think everybody should think about that. Um, yeah. Uh, let me see. <laughs> let me see what my final thought would be. I have three. One, follow us at Delve Into Discourse on Instagram. Right. So you keep up with the reading list, the updates, all of that. Um, two, stop reading white fragility. I'm good. We can talk about that. I'm going to talk. I guess I can talk about that on the actual page, but please actually read black scholars and other scholars of color who study whiteness versus reading um, about white fragility from the white perspective. That's not a part of decentral whiteness. Um, And then third, I want to say, stop living out imperial dreams, decolonize your imagination. Right. (laughs) All right. That's it. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you.